All right, why don't you guys turn to Isaiah 34. And we have an amazing uh, Mother's Day teaching. It's fully loaded here. If you look at the header, I'm sure you'll think that uh, the header of uh, what's in your Bible there, you'll immediately think Mother's Day, Judgment on the Nations, right? Uh, this is like, this is absolutely what pastors use all the time for Mother's Day. Um, but I think as we go through the teaching today, what you're going to see is you're going to see that today's teaching actually has a ton to do with mothers. Because the more uh, I walk with moms in this church, the more I realize that moms have a massive heart for shalom, uh, peace, and wholeness, and justice in their own homes and outward. Uh, they care for the kids of the world. And I think that today's teaching, while it's not directly geared at you moms, uh, it will definitely capture your heart to bring about wholeness in this world. And so I'm excited to teach it this morning. Well, last week, we asked ourselves the question, are we at ease in the age that is passing away, or are we leaning into the age that is to come? And we looked at this idea of the two ages, the passing age and the coming age, and that we sit in the age of overlap in which the two are both at work. In the church, hopefully the age to come is at work, and we are surrounded by the passing age, and even within ourselves, sometimes we are tempted to live in the passing age. We see that God will come, and God will set things to right. And how he will do this is what we'll be looking at today, the final statement of the woes in Isaiah. And then we get into some discussion about who, um, uh, the, the historical setting in the next few chapters, and then eventually we'll get into the servant's song, starting in really chapter 40, 42, talking about Jesus Christ and the hope that is to come, and then 20 chapters of amazing grace and hope. And I'm looking forward to teaching that. But today, we're going to be looking at this last word on what will come in the end. And that coming age will be taken up by two things. First, a universal judgment, and second, a universal restoration. Now, most of us who are Christians or grew up in Christian homes or have gotten some form of Christian teaching, we take these two events, judgment and restoration, as just realities, right? It's just what will happen. We don't even really bat an eyelash for it. But we must understand that the majority of the people in this world, and maybe even some of you here today, do not want to or cannot grasp the idea of these two events. Because judgment tied to restoration seems so contrary, and it seems almost barbaric. How can you have true restoration when you have judgment along with it? The humanistic ideal is to look forward when our man-made efforts will bring about the peace that we all desire, a utopia and a paradise in which we will reap world peace and end to plagues and violence, free love, free food, and free health care. All these things will be ours based upon our works. Restoration we have no problem with. It is judgment tied to restoration that we, as Christians, kind of whisper about in back rooms as if we're embarrassed by the idea. Should we still hold on to this archaic idea of restoration tied with judgment. What I want to show you today is that in order for restoration to occur, judgment must also occur. In order for restoration to occur, judgment must also occur. And for our purposes today, we'll say it simply this way. Restoration requires justice. Restoration requires justice. 
For the sake of time, let's jump right into Isaiah 34, and we are first going to see the universal judgment. Let's look at Isaiah 34, and we're going to read through the whole chapter. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. I told you this was a good Mother's Day teaching. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord, Yahweh, has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall not lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch out the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom, and all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of Yahweh. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has proportioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. We see here a very sad section, the universal judgment that is to come. And if you're anything like me, when you read through it, you become very confused as to what all these signs and symbols are. Is this a section we take literally? Is this poetry? The reality here is that Isaiah is trying to speak to us of a time that will come in words that, that capture a picture for us a deserted place that is dying, that has actually been so um, destroyed that the hills flow with blood, uh, that there's just sulfur and, and lava. Uh, this is like Star Wars episode, what is it, three, where they're on the planet with lava. Everything is destroyed, right? It's just a gross place. What is he trying to say to us? Well, the first thing that we have to admit to ourselves as we read this is that the average person that has grown up in this postmodern age of relativism is that this section of Scripture seems horrifically barbaric. It may actually even seem that way to you and to me. 
Someone might ask us the question such as, what is the point of this section? What is the point of the judgment? Why does it have to occur? Isn't your God a God of love? Can't he just save everyone? Or at the very least, annihilate those who are the worst of the worst? Can't he just forgive everyone? Isn't he the one in power, you say, as Christians? And these are honest questions, are they not? How many of us in this room wrestle with the idea of judgment? Our God is love, and yet he judges. What, what is that all about? How can he reconcile that in his own heart and mind? Well, I fear at the root, these questions have a misunderstanding of sin. And I believe this misunderstanding of sin is just as prevalent in the world as it is in the midst of the church. Let me unpack this a little bit. Sin is often defined as missing the mark of God's design. Now, that's a great definition, but I think that it is a little bit more robust when we add to it that it's missing the mark of relational order. It's missing the mark that leads to division in the midst of relationships. It's inflicting unrighteousness upon God and upon one another. Remember our definitions that we've been following throughout Isaiah. Righteousness means right relationship and status. Justice means activity that brings righteousness about. And the more we understand these and the more we start to see these words pop out of Scripture at us, you will see it as a massive theme, a massive theme throughout Scripture. I just got done writing a thesis paper on the the book of the Twelve, all the minor prophets, and how the entire point of the Twelve Minor Prophets is this, righteousness and justice. Not one of them has a theme other than this, even Jonah itself. You guys remember the Veggie Tales, right? Veggie Tales, even kind of, sort of, that's one of the few Veggie Tales movies that actually gets it somewhat right. There's this idea of righteousness and justice, and Jonah wants the destruction of the people, and yet God says, wait a minute, you're concerned about justice for a plant? Should I not be concerned about justice for all these people and their cattle? It's justice and righteousness. And so we see this throughout Scripture. And when we sin, what we are doing is we are altering the right relationships that God put in place of God and one another, and we're turning them upside down. Let me show you what I mean here with my wonderful graphics that you guys so love, I know. Those words, that, those letters up there are Hebrew letters, yod Hey, vav Hey, okay? And it's how you would spell Yahweh or Jehovah in Scripture. We don't know which pronunciation is correct because we have a Y, an H, a a W, or a V, and an H, Yahweh, or Jehovah, okay? Now, how righteousness works is God is over his creation. We all got that? That makes pretty good sense, right? God is over his creation. We'll make it simple for us in the English language here. God is over his creation. This is righteousness. Now, within mankind, God is over all mankind, but we are all created in the image of God. See, this picture right here, as basic as it is, this shows all the brokenness in mankind because any attempt at unrighteousness is to flip these all upside down. Whether you're talking about sex trafficking or slavery or even sin within a marriage or within a home, here's what happens. Unrighteousness occurs when we put ourselves above God and create idols to serve our purposes. We turn God into the cosmic butler to answer when we need him. 
And what we do with people is rather than have right, equal relationship between two images of God, what we do that creates unrighteousness is we completely remove God and we put ourselves and our own needs above another person. This is the basics of unrighteousness. Now, to help you understand what I'm talking about, let's look at the text we have before us, and we'll see this section of chapter 34 talking about unrighteousness toward God and why judgment is necessar- necessary in order to bring about righteousness. So let's take a look here. In verse 1, it says, Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. Right away in these two verses, we see and are reminded of, maybe you even might be thinking of other scriptures. For example, Psalm 24.1 says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. What 34.1 and 2 is talking about here is it's giving us the fact that the creation is the Lord's. And that righteousness is when all nations worship him in his proper place as God. That's righteousness. God is the giver and sustainer of life. If you've been going through the catechism, I think that's number, question number three or four, right? He is the giver and sustainer of all life, the provider of all that exists. And it is not only right that we give him worship as God, but that we realize that to enjoy eternal life means to be sustained in that eternal life by relationship with the eternal God. And so we need God to remove him from that position, to remove him from this position here of God above his creation. Innately is unrighteousness. But we're further reminded in verse 1 that we have refused his goodness. Why? Because he's crying out to the nations. He used similar language to cry out to Israel. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love him with all your heart, mind, and soul. And he used Israel as a symbol and an example to the world that said, Be drawn to me. I'm a good God. And yet we refused him. We refused his goodness. And we did not want to hear. And so what we have done is rather than keep it as righteousness, we have flipped it upside down And we have instead become the God, all things needing to be about us and for our glory and our purposes, and God has been there simply to serve us. We've created a situation where we have usurped his authority. And this is called, very simply, idolatry. In putting ourselves in the position of God and minimizing his role instead to be a cosmic butler, we are practicing unrighteousness and injustice. You see, we were created to be made in his image, not the other way around. Genesis talks about this. You remember Genesis 1, 26 through 27. God said, let us make man in our image. And that word in Hebrew could also be rendered idol, right? God made us as little statues after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Our only authority was given to us by God. We are his ambassadors. We are not the final authority. So it says God created man in his own image, idol. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And then later it says he breathed life into us. And yet we turned this upside down. And what does Paul tell us in Romans chapter 1? You can write this down. This is Romans 1, 18 through 25. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, catch that word, guys, suppress the truth. What is the truth? That God is God and we are not. Say it with me. God is God and I am not. That's the truth. But we suppress it by doing what? By putting ourselves over creation and making God into how we want to form him. Rather than going to the Word and getting a picture of God, we make up God in our own mind. We might put the name Jesus on it, but it's a God that's created as an idol, guys. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because we have it in creation, we have it in the Word. And it says because God has shown it to them by His grace. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they, that's us, that's mankind, knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Through idolatry, mankind has tried to suppress the truth of the correct order of the cosmos. And because of this, God must work to bring about justice to set things right. If it's not set right, guys, it doesn't work because he is the source of all life. For him to be a good God, he must set things right. And so what he does is he uses the picture of Edom. We don't have time to go into why I know this today, but there's a lot of reasoning behind it. Edom is used as a symbol of the world here. And he says he's going to be, bring wrath against Edom, the whole world. And this judgment is not just for wrath's sake. This is, guys, this is just like uh, when I talk about parenting okay, and discipline. If you're disciplining your kids for punishment's sake, you have already lost. If you are disciplining and training your children for righteousness' sake, to restore what was broken, that's how you win. That's a successful parenting move. He's not doing this just for wrath's sake. He's doing it for righting the wrong. He's doing this for justice. And what is justice? It's the activity that brings about right relationship. Well, how does he do this? Well, remember the people pictured here do not want God in his rightful place of authority over them. So what we see is that God's judgment toward the unrepentant. And remember, judgment and justice are very similar, okay? They both come from the same word in the Hebrew. God's justice towards the unrepentant has two major parts. The first part is restoration of right relationship, okay? Restoration of right relationship. He puts the relationship back in the proper order, and he does this in two ways. First, take a look with me at verses 5 and 6. He says, For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. Yahweh has a sword, and it is sated with blood. This idea of sword is seen throughout the Word of God as a statement of authority. By using the sword, he is putting himself back in the place of proper authority. Many of you might be familiar uh, with Revelation 19. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, says this. 
and this is speaking of the same act that will occur in the end of days, the judgment, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in, what's that next word? Say it out loud. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. Those are crowns. In other words, he is the ultimate authority. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. It speaks of the fact that he has already been the sacrifice and that has earned him the authority. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Guys, this is a metaphor for the fact that his word is authority itself. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. See, his activity is to restore proper status and proper relationship. Now, as Christians, we look at this and we go, yes, finally, he's going to establish himself. And then I pause for a moment and I think how many times I usurp his authority in my own life. Do I think of him as king of kings and lord of lords? Do I allow him the proper position of authority in my life? So he does this work where he rightly restores relationship by putting himself back in authority. But secondly, within that main movement of restoration of right relationship, he also removes mankind's authority. Why? Because if we don't want God as our authority, we have no authority. You see, all authority given to us is as if we are ambassadors. It's kind of like if our ambassador goes to a foreign country, the picture behind him of the current president gives him the power within his embassy. The second he says, well, I don't want that person to rule over me, he's lost his power. Same thing for us as humanity. And this is what happens in the midst of judgment. God takes away the authority of mankind. Look at what it says here in chapter 34, verse 12. Speaking of the authorities within this kingdom that is to be destroyed, it says, it's nobles. There is no one there to call it a kingdom, and all its princes shall be nothing. We think we're pretty powerful until we come face to face with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But then secondly, he also gives up creation over to its desires. You see, what's so funny to me is I have thought this for a long time, and just in the last few years, it's really come to an understanding that is totally opposite. I used to think that judgment was God forcing his will on everyone. The reality is, is it's God letting people's own choices play out. Natural consequences. Again, parents, if you want to be a good parent, let your children suffer their natural consequences. I have had to sit in rooms where parents have looked at me and said, should I turn my kids over to the police for this? And I say, absolutely. How else will they learn righteousness and justice? But I don't want them to get a, a you know, something on their record. Whose choice was that? Reality is, is that parents who protect their kids from natural consequences are doing their children more harm than good. And God, as a loving father, gives creation over to its desires. God does not force us to follow him and accept his breath of life. If we desire to step aside, he ultimately will. 
And so we see there in verse 11, this odd statement at the end there, verse 11, he says, he shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Now, this makes really no sense to us in, uh, in English, but what he's saying here is that if he removes himself, the order and beauty of creation will become meaningless, dark, and empty. It will be as if order of creation was never done in the first place. This is what hell is, guys. It's a removal of the order and love of God. The words here for uh, confusion and emptiness are the words in the Hebrew tohu vabohu. Everybody say tohu vabohu. It's kind of fun to say, okay? Where, where else we see it is only two other places. Once in Jeremiah, but the first place we see it is here in Genesis 1-2. The earth was tohu vabohu, without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hover, hovering over the face of the waters. This is before the creation act when there is some form of complete chaos and disorder. God has created the basis of creation, but then something occurred, and there could be all sorts of theories as to why it occurred, but it caused chaos, and it caused creation to be without form and void. And what God will do in giving up creation back to itself and its own devices is he will let chaos reign, and he will remove his order and his care from creation. Overall, we can look at this entire chapter and we can see in this universal act of judgment that it is one of righteousness and justice. It is not a mean God inflicting pain on people just for punishment's sake. It is rightly restoring creation to its proper order of relationship and at the same time giving mankind the freedom to make their own choice. It is the most loving act imaginable. And we can be sure that it will happen because the book that we hold in our hands, it says in verse 16, seek and read from the book of Yahweh. The book that we hold in our hands says over and over that God will act and this will come about. He does not gloss over sin. He deals with it. He affects justice and righteousness. And the gospel, the good news of the Bible, is that he has done what is necessary to acknowledge and deal with sin. This is the word of God. And it is a weighty word to be sure. My first point of application this morning is simply this. Do you believe that this will occur? Do you firmly believe that this will occur? Do you believe so much that your life reflects that this day will occur. I think it is right for us to let this weigh upon us to such a point that it convicts us that we do not want to go this way. That we want to choose a different way that does not lead to destruction. And the gospel, the good news, is that praise God, by his grace, he has provided a different way. This is the way that every single person on this planet ever born will go if they do not repent from the way that is common to man and choose God's different way. A way that he calls in chapter 35 the way of holiness. And this speaks of the universal restoration. The universal restoration. 
Let's read chapter 35, the word of the Lord. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. There's a little bit more Mother's Day material here, eh? Amen? The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of our God. So strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Can I get an amen? amen? To the Jewish listener, this would have immediately transferred their mind back to the event of the Exodus. And they would have understood the previous chapter in a form of judgment as the judgment upon the Egyptians that God placed because they would not repent and turn to him. But chapter 35 immediately makes them think of the salvation and redemption of the Lord that came to them. But this exodus is a bit different, isn't it? Unlike the first exodus where the wilderness was a sort of prison to the people, this time it is being transformed to the benefit of God's people. Unlike the whining and discontent in the first exodus, there is now rejoicing and singing. Unlike the 40 years paved with death and rebellion, Salvation has already been achieved, and so there will be a way of holiness that is elevated above the rest of the land, and so clear is it that it is a direct shot to the promised land, free of danger, free of barriers. Unlike the first exodus where those who were saved died in the wilderness, they were saved out of Egypt, but by their own sin they died not even making their way to Zion, This shows that God's people will arrive in the promised land of Zion with joy. Within this restoration, just as in his judgment, you see God's righteousness and justice to those who have taken the way of holiness. Who are these people? Let's take a look here. Verse 2 ends with, They shall see the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of our God. These are words that speak to the fact that those who are on the highway of holiness, sounds like a better ACDC song, doesn't it? They will have as their king Yahweh. 
God will be in his proper place, not removed down to what we desire him to be. We see then in verse 8 that it says that the unclean shall not pass over it. In other words, those that walk on the way of holiness, a sacrifice has been done for them. There is no impurity because the sacrifice has cleansed them. And it shall be, it says, to those who walk on the way that even if they are fools, even if innately there's a little bit something off about us, we shall not go astray, we shall stay on the way. The people pictured here are God's people, Jesus' people, those who truly worship Jesus as Lord, as King, and as Savior. And Jesus was very clear when he said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. He is the way of holiness. He is the truth that we have tried to suppress. And he is the source of life. He is God himself. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you don't know Jesus as your dear personal Lord, King, and Savior this morning, you must wrestle with this statement. The only thing that is left to you if you push aside Jesus Christ and his gospel is chaos and eternity in judgment. But Jesus gives you the way, paved with his own blood, done in an act of complete sacrifice, by his cross, as corny as this picture is, this is the truth of what has occurred. By the cross, he has rightly established God in his proper position. He has rightly poured out his wrath upon sin, and Jesus took it freely on the cross. The sin that we deserved hell and punishment for, he has taken. And in so doing, he has rightly established our relationship in righteousness with God. And he asks us by his word, by his spirit, and by his work to establish righteousness between one another, as we will talk about in a moment. You see, there is no name other than Jesus given under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way. And we must look at him and realize that he has ransomed us paid the price for our sin. He has redeemed us. That word redeemed in the Hebrew, you'll think about Ruth immediately. A person who could not redeem themselves was so poor they couldn't pull themselves up out of poverty. But someone else, Boaz, comes into Ruth's life and by his act of selflessness, he redeems Ruth. That is what Jesus has done for us. And in so doing, Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom in which all the effects of sin on mankind and creation will eventually be undone. Look at verses 5 through 7 and pay attention to what Isaiah is saying here. He's saying the things that are the result of sin will be completely undone. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. And shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert the burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. By God's work of righteousness and justice, all that was wrong shall be made right. What a glorious day that will be. What a glorious day that will be. Now, this is all very well and good, you might say. 
Isaiah has done this to us many times so far. He shows us the judgment and he shows us the restoration. Hans, what other than waiting for that day do we have to use as application in the midst of this? I believe that we can take a very practical application away from this. And it is this. In our life today, right now, restoration requires justice. And I want to take the last little bit of today's teaching. And I want to show you what I mean by this. Some of this I've taught before. But let me talk to you as the pastor of this church for just a second. There are many of you in here that are serving like crazy in righteousness and justice. And I am honored to be your co-laborer. You know who you are. I praise God for you every day. There are many of you in here who are in the midst of the biggest battle of your life fighting against sin tooth and nail. I praise God for you every day. I thank you for fighting sin. But there are also those in this congregation, and this week has prominently shown me that in a few different ways, that do not understand what it is to walk in the kingdom of Christ and that restoration requires justice. You see, I said early on in the teaching that I believe that this weird thing in the the world in general is that sin needs to be removed, this idea of sin. The only sin to the world is calling anything sin, right? But in the church, we have come to the same outcome in a different way. We have glossed over sin in an essence of cheap grace. We've taken sin and not made it mean anything. And so when sin occurs in the body, we want to hurry up and get over it or gloss over it for the sake of the body. It's better for the body if we just move past this one. It's okay if abuse occurs. Uh, It's okay if somebody sins against somebody. It's okay if gossip occurs. It's no big deal. Jesus died for our sins. Let's gloss over it and move past it. But see, the reality is, is for the church to be a witness to the world, we must read chapters 34 and 35 and realize God's heart is that restoration requires justice and we must use it within our own relationships. This is not just for the future, but it's for now. Let me unpack this for you a little bit. Remember the last week we talked about leaning into the age to come, leaning into the kingdom, the kingdom that has been inaugurated, that operates on the principles of righteousness and justice. We won't be perfect at it, but we lean into it big time, trying to show the world what that kingdom will be like. Guys, this is what Jesus' ministry was, wasn't it? Why did he do all those cool party tricks? Why did he walk on water? Why did he restore and heal people? Why did he take the leper and bring them back into society and restore their status? Why did he take the prostitute and elevate her out of the pit she was in and restore her to right status? He did it to glimpse, give a glimpse of the kingdom. This is how I operate, is what he was saying. And those of you that follow me, this is how you operate. And we get so stuck in the idea of, well, let's cast out demons and heal. Those are the cool ones. The hard ones are just simply acting in righteousness and justice. Taking our selfish needs and putting them aside and putting in place, not this where our selfishness is above God, but this 
where righteous and right relationship is in place between God and man and one another. To the non-believing world, as I said, the only sin that exists is to call something sin. But in the American church, our idea is almost as bad and maybe even worse. We should know better. We have, the, uh, we have abused the idea of the cross so that sin should be forgotten, moved past as quickly as possible, forgiven. One of the worst things that I ever have to do in this job is help people walk through the process of righteousness and justice. To own up to the sin that we've done and realize, yes, God has paid for it and it has restored our relationship with God, but there are temporal effects to the brokenness I have caused. That is what we are called to do as Christians. Sin should not be moved past as quickly as possible, forgiven and forgotten. In fact, there is no such idea in the Bible to forgive and forget. None. Jesus chooses to remember our sin no more because he sees us repenting from the sin in the first place. And his sacrifice covers us. What we've done is in a different way than the world. We have removed the weightiness of sin and caused the same outcome. And in reality, taken away the cross as having any meaning or power. We tell the holy God that our sin is so slight that it should be forgiven if we pray a simple prayer. Whether or not we have truly repented from our prayer way of life, whether or not we have counted the cost of following him. And if we go off the tracks and sin some, well, I can just go back to church and pray that sinner's prayer one more time. How weak does that make the cross? We tell one another that our sin against them is so slight that they should hurry up and grant us grace and forgiveness, not realizing that grace is the room to repent not the grace, that grace is the room to keep on sinning. In so doing, we invalidate the harm that has been done to them, and we elevate ourselves above them. We neglect to deal with trauma and abuse in the midst of our families and in the midst of our churches because it's more important to just keep moving on for appearances and not rock the boat to deal with sin. In my own life, at the age of three, I was part of a daycare in which there was sexual abuse. I have no idea, and I do not want to go back to that place in hypnosis or anything else to figure out if I was one of the ones abused or if I was simply one of the people that was in the midst of it, watching it. But what I was told when I found out older, when I was older as an adult, was that, well, you were one of the only kids that wasn't abused. The gentleman who ran the daycare abused multiple children across multiple states and served time for it. And I was told, you weren't abused, it's okay, move on. What they didn't realize is that that spiraled me into a series of hypersexuality, and pornography, that I am just now at the age of 37 finally getting out from underneath because sin was glossed over. Hurry up and move past it. You see, the reality is, is that when sin happens, it's like the first law of thermodynamics. It has to be transferred. It can't just disappear. And we want to transfer it all upon Jesus, but the problem is, is that's not how these earthly vessels are created. These earthly vessels are created in a way to remember sin and brokenness and to pass it on. This is why Jesus says very clearly that generate generation after generation will feel sin unless sin is dealt with. 
What these two chapters in Isaiah tell us is that sin must be dealt with. It cannot simply disappear into nothingness. For restoration to occur, there must be some form of recompense, some form of justice, not vengeance, but restoration of right relationship. You see, to acknowledge the weight of sin is to fully glorify Christ's sacrifice on the cross, to give it the weight it deserves. If we gloss over sin, we're saying the cross wasn't really all that needed. But the reality is the cross was massively needed because of the weight of sin. And notice that in both the section on judgment and the section on restoration, Isaiah uses the same phrase twice. Take a look at it, 34.8. 34.8. It says, For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Vengeance and recompense in judgment. That makes sense, right? But turn over to 35.4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Both of these words have to do with making amends and setting things to right. What God understands better than I believe we do is that sin must be dealt with. It can never just disappear and be forgotten. This is why unrepentant sin in the midst of our families and churches passes on generation to generation to generation. And it is up to us, those of us who are truly in the kingdom of heaven, to put a stop to the sin, to recognize it, validate it, deal with it, and truly let Christ die for it. If we do not, it just keeps getting transferred. Sin begets sin if it is not confessed and dealt with. Now, what we must understand is that true repentance requires both the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the recompense that happens within the temporal now. Jesus died as a sacrifice to purify us and cleanse us, to restore right relationship with God. Without Jesus, there is no restoration to God. It is absolutely necessary. And without that first step, we cannot then take the second step of restoring right relationship in the here and now through recompense. Or you can think of it as repayment or restoration. Let me give you an extremely basic example of how this should work in the church. Let's say that someone is harmed by something you said. So your response is to do what most of our society does, and you say, what do you say when you're in trouble? I'm sorry, and please forgive me. Will you forgive me, okay? So the person feels forced into a corner because good Christians forgive. So they say, I forgive you. And in that moment, what has just happened? The sin that was weighty and has been done transfers off the person who it should rightly sit on, and who is it placed on now? the victim, the one who is harmed. See, our desire to hurry up and move on for the sake of good Christian appearances actually shoots the wounded and causes them to carry the sin that was done to them. So not only are they harmed by sin done to them, but they're now carrying the sin of the person who harmed them. Trust has already been removed and harm has been done. Is it truly undone with those few words? 
Is it truly undone and restored with, I'm sorry, please forgive me? It's not. So, how is sin properly dealt with? Well, let's take a look. Here's how sin is properly dealt with in the here and now. The first step is to recognize Christ as sacrifice and king. Guys, again, without understanding that Jesus has died to restore us to a right relationship with Christ, and that in his death he is giving us by his spirit uh, the kingdom of selflessness to affect righteousness and justice in the here and now, we are lost. And so we must realize that he sacrificed his life to restore us to the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we must also recognize that he is a king, the only king, the king of kings, who demands of his people that they follow in his law of righteousness and justice. And so what do we do? Well, we go to the person. And if we have harmed them and we don't know it, Matthew 18 says it is their requirement, those that have been harmed, to go to those that have harmed them and say, you harmed me. And when confronted with this, we, those that have harmed, confess. What does this do? This identifies the sin. It names it. It says, yes, this sin occurred. great example is one of my sons lied to mom. They do this very rarely. But he wanted to say, what do you think he wanted to say? I'm sorry, please forgive me. And so I rightly corrected him and I said, no, you need to go to mom and say, mom, I confess, this is my six-year-old, mom, I confess that I have sinned against God and against you by lying to you. It's a little bit tougher to say, isn't it? And rightly so in the midst of that, because my sons do have conviction and I believe they have the Holy Spirit in them, he broke down crying because he realized what he'd done. To confess it is to identify the sin, not just gloss over it. Secondly, there needs to be empathy. Empathy, a validation. In my training on trauma and abuse, one of the biggest things that they tell us is that even if abuse was done long ago, when you're sitting in front of someone who has been abused, you validate and then validate again and then validate again and then validate again that abuse has occurred. You empathize. And what you're doing there is you're validating the harm. Whether you've done it to the person or they have experienced it, you validate it. You don't sit in drama and, oh, poor you. You validate it. This was destructive. In so doing, you are giving the cross the power it deserves. Fourth, if you are the person who has caused the harm, this is where repentance comes in. And guess what? We don't get to decide what repentance looks like. The person who has been harmed gets to decide what repentance looks like. And so to God, when we unrighteously harm him, we say to God, how would you have us repent? And we must read his word. When we've harmed against another human being, we ask them, what does repentance look like to you? How do I turn not only in action, but also in thought to show you that I am truly turning away from the thought pattern and the activity that caused the sin against you to a new way of life? And guys, remember that if you're the person who's receiving this, you've been sinned against and you're receiving this and you're trying to get vengeance, and so you're like, uh, go jump off a you know, short pier, Right? Well, now you're acting in unrighteousness. 
The whole point of what the kingdom of heaven is about is to restore shalom and peace and equality. It is to restore right relationship. And so both parties must act towards what is justice in this case. If there's a felony, it must go to the state. If there's sexual abuse, it must be dealt with by the authorities. There are things that must happen for repentance to occur and justice to happen. Number five, restitution. This is where you begin to take the time in the midst of repentance to restore what was lost. We can look no further than Leviticus to see what this is. Uh, Guess what? In this church, if your ox gores another person's ox, I'm going to have you repay their ox, right? You're going to get a new ox. That's how it works in this church, okay? It's a little bit harder when you've lost trust, when you've hurt someone and what you've done is destroyed the trust of the relationship. It must be rebuilt, and that is the process of restitution, Sometimes there might be actions taken in order to restore what was lost. And it's going to take time. And that activity over time will eventually lead to number six, which is restoration and reconciliation. Guys, you can take this model and apply it to anything across the board, from gossip uh, to um, adultery to pornography to stealing to whatever it might be, the smallest of sins to the greatest of sins. We must realize that this is how we are called to act within the kingdom of heaven. Maybe even some of you sitting here today, this is the first you've ever heard that the abuse that you suffered should be validated. That's going to be the start of the Lord undoing a ton of hurt in your lives. Maybe you're a person who has sinned in abuse of another person. And this is the first you've heard that in order to get free of the shame and the hurt that you feel, you must go through the process of validating the sin, owning up to it, and dealing with it. It's a long process, and it is hard, and it hurts. But at the end, I guarantee you, you will gain freedom. In these cases, the sin is acknowledged. There's validation. There's repentance put in place. And restoration and reconciliation occur. Now for those situations and sins that we can do nothing about, that the other party wants nothing to do with restoration, or maybe it's long since passed and no one wants to deal with it, much of what we must do is work internally to allow the Lord the chance to do His work by the Holy Spirit and eventually know that where justice has not been done, He will do it. He will be the final arbiter of justice and truth. But our job in the kingdom of heaven is to do as best we can to bring justice into the present. And so for those of us in the church, we must operate differently. We must confront relational sin and injustice immediately. Don't idolize how people view you so much that you become passive-aggressive in dealing with people. Go directly to them and speak the truth with them. And those of you that are hearing from the other person, listen and hear. The first law of love is to listen. And each one of us should take time introspectively to ask, am I being too sensitive? Am I overdoing this? Before we go to the person and tell them that they have sinned against us. And if we are, we need to let it go and move on. For us to be the church that God desires for us to be, we must work. We must work to bring justice in the midst of this church. 
It doesn't do any good, guys, if we're paying money to IJM to do justice out there if we don't first have justice in here, if we don't have the restoration of right relationship. We must restore relationships to their proper place. And moms, I know that you, whether you see conflict in this church or conflict in your own friendships or conflict in your home, I know your hearts are to draw the people closest to you to restoration. And I know it's hard sometimes for all of us in this community to think about this. This is difficult. This is not the way humans operate. This is not what the world tells us. But guys, this is why we're a city on a hill. If we cannot give the world this in the midst of our community, we can give them nothing. And so I would say to you that feel that this is difficult and might even have someone on your heart and mind that you need to go to today to work on restoration. I would leave you with what Isaiah's command is here. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will save you. God will eventually restore all things to right standing, and we can take solace in that. But today, as his ambassadors in the world, I pray that we can be a people that give an understanding of his justice and righteousness to the world around us by our love one for another and by our effort to always work towards restoration, even when it causes us to be vulnerable and it is uncomfortable. This is God's call upon this church. I want to encourage every single one of us in here to take time to consider any relational brokenness in our homes, in our friendships, or in this church in general. And I want to ask you to confess. Confess those sins one to another. To go to the people. Maybe it's even me. Maybe I've harmed you by some of my preaching. Maybe I've hurt you with something I've said. Maybe your expectations of me have been that I'll be your best friend by coming to this church, and I've failed you in that. We all know that that can't happen. But the reality is, that we need to cause reconciliation to occur. And so we must take time and look at ourselves and say, is there any harm I've done to anyone that I need to go and rectify? Is there any harm that has been done to me that I need to go and talk to the person about? We must do this, guys. This is our testimony to the goodness of God.